you are Australia's greatest ever golfer in a lot of people's eyes and male or female, just in general, your career has been phenomenal. Seven majors, over 50 wins. When you go through Wikipedia, it's it's hard to tell what the exact number is. Is it like 50 to somewhere between 50 and 70? Yeah, Yeah, I know. Uh, Yeah, there's a couple of double ups with uh, like uh, the Australian Open was an LPGA event one of the times that I won it. So, yeah, they, they double up. It's good when it gets up to 70 when it's really like 53. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just phenomenal. I, but I'm guessing for most professional golfers, like one is good or five is good. We're talking like a variance between 50 and 70. This is, it's ridiculous on so many levels, but um, it's just a testament to how amazing your career was. And as we, as we dig into this, I just wanted to, you know, we, as with most interviews, let's start with the early days and how you got into the game and, and what made you fall in love with the game of golf? Well, I grew up in um, a sugar cane farming town, uh, Air in North Queensland. Uh, so uh, very, uh, well, right around when um, I was born, my parents and my grandparents, my mum's parents, uh, took up the game. And so they were just really avid golfers uh, in my my younger years and just growing up in the country in a country club. um, It was a fairly young membership, which, you know, really isn't the case in most clubs. But um, at the time, it was a relatively young membership with a a lot of uh, couples uh, around my parents' age or slightly older, but everyone had kids. And... um, and so it was just a great atmosphere. Mum and Dad would play on a Saturday afternoon and um, my grandparents would look after us and drop us out to the club at about 5 o'clock in the afternoon and Mum and Dad would be upstairs having a drink um, with the people that they played with and, and we'd just be downstairs, you know, running riot, all the kids. Um, so I think it was just initially it was just a great atmosphere and I just wanted to be at the club uh, more and I, and I wanted to – Mum and Dad – enjoyed it my grandparents enjoyed it so I just felt I guess I felt like it was something that I was going to enjoy well that, that's so amazing like it's probably not what most people's perceptions are off the the traditional golf club like we've spoken about it so much with future golfers how amazing would it be like seeing a golf club where it is families out there you know it's not just four guys or four ladies like it's it's a family of parents and kids going around and it sounds like that's the environment that you you grew up in and was it that kind of connection that got you really connected to the sport and just being able to run amok? Yeah, I think so. I think, um, you know, I never felt that, um, you know, the unease or um, or not being made feel welcome at the club I grew up with um, just because, again, a country club needs all the members they can get. Um and we had a really good junior program, so there was tons of kids um, my age and a little bit older playing And when I started when I was eight. Um, so I think that, you know, that welcoming um, and, and not the stereotypical, um, you know, snooty golf club culture didn't exist. So mm. um, it wasn't until I started playing golf more competitively in my teen years and and heading down to the capital cities where I actually realized that that was the culture at a lot of those golf clubs um but yeah I mean if if you look at how I got into golf and why I started to love it was because it was you know a family sport and and everyone was welcome 
And and what parts of the game did you did you really love at the beginning? Like, was it driving the ball, putting, chipping? Was there a particular bit where you're like, I'm really looking forward to this today? Uh, I just I was a sports mad kid, so I um, you know played everything. But um, I think what I loved about golf was just the um, individuality of, of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I could I could put in all the work, and it was going to benefit me. Um, and it wasn't, you know, if I was playing softball or cricket or um, a team sport, you know, it wasn't, you know, someone else didn't do their practice or, you know, they didn't, they don't catch the ball as well as I did and they dropped, dropped one and we lost the game. Um, you know, it was all on me. And I think that's why I gravitated towards golf um, in the end was because I, I, I liked um, that I had control of what was going mm. on. That's great. And, and were you a natural from day one or how did the journey start? Um, I think I was pretty, pretty natural. Um, yeah. <laughs> had a, I, I I'm, was pretty good. I don't know if I am as much now, I think, as you, as you become an adult, you're, you're less childlike. But um, I was very good at mimicking um, ah. what I saw on TV. Uh, and so, like, even um, I played a bit of cricket growing up and um, I was a pretty decent bowler. And um, I remember being asked who taught me to bowl, and I was like, oh, I just watched it on TV. So, um, like Dennis Lilly. You know, <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think with golf, my natural swing was just me mimicking what I'd seen on TV, and then obviously from there, mm-hmm. having a good base was a lot easier to, to coach, you know, an eight-year-old kid who was keen to to learn. And that's great. And like, was there an early model for your golf swing that you were? Mimicking? No, I don't think. I mean, obviously, I looked up to Greg Norman, but um, I don't. I don't know if I ever really modelled my swing of any ones. I think, um, you know, uh, when I when I first started, when I was eight, we never had a club professional at our course. Um, so, uh, my parents' good friend uh, Calvin Heller, who uh, mm-hmm. was the head green superintendent at the club and also one of the best players in the club. Um, they asked him if he'd give me lessons and just keep an eye on me. Um, so I think he just really uh, he learned he learned all of his um, golf knowledge through reading golf magazines. So um, I think he he just really developed my natural swing, and and then and then anything that he had learned from reading golf magazines, he sort of um, made fit my swing. So um, yeah, it was uh, very very I mean great. Obviously, but it was just um, basic knowledge that he'd, he'd learned himself. That's amazing. And and tell us a little bit about uh, Kelvin and your relationship because he was your coach pretty much all throughout your career, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, he's still still a part of my coaching team now. Um, but yeah, Kelvin. Um, well, he started coaching me when I was eight, and um, and then um, as I got a little bit older, and I started playing. Uh, up with the adults uh, in club competition and then, you know, club opens and stuff like that, we would uh, partner up and play in the mixed foursomes. So we, we won quite a few club championships and district championships and, and uh, mixed foursomes together. Um, and then uh, uh, when I was uh, 16, Calvin uh, had an accident and uh, became a quadriplegic. Um, so he coached, you know, of obviously coached me for for eight years and we had a very very close bond and once he'd come home from hospital and and um you know 
had adjusted to his new new way of life, he he took straight back up to to coaching me again, and and actually was my only coach through the best part of my career, um, mm-hmm. reaching world number one and and um, winning. Yeah, winning six of the seven majors, uh, he was my only coach. Um, a, and, yeah, amazing story. And and uh, how did that how did that dynamic shift like after after the incident, like, and then going through the coaching? What was that like? Um, well, I think again because we had such a a close bond, um, and because he'd been my only coach, um, we were just. A, able to communicate with with words and and I knew the game enough that if he said you know do this I'd go do you mean this or this and you know so um there were uh I I think I think what he had and what I've loved is that you know I I could still challenge him he wanted me to challenge him and and then if that ended up in a you know drag down punch up you know that's what it did you know we people would always look couldn't believe that would be arguing the way we were and that I was talking to him the way I was but that was them looking at him as someone in a wheelchair rather than Mm. me I was looking at him as my coach and if he was able-bodied no one would care that we were screaming at one another about trying to work out what was wrong with my swing so um we just had a very good um bond that way and um and through the early part of my professional career, um, we, you know, we'd only see each other in person maybe maybe two weeks a year. Mm. Um, I'd be home in, in air and uh, and we'd, we'd practice um, two or three weeks maybe it would be, but um, it'd only be sort of Christmas time and, and around the Australian tournament. So it was really only the beginning of the year and then I'd go, you know, eight months without seeing him. Um, and it was early stages of the internet and I'd be, you know, videoing my golf swing on a, you know, proper full camera with tripod and everything. And then I'd have to get back to my hotel room, download it onto my computer, you know, then do the dial-up internet and, um, you know, email it to him. And and then with the time difference and by the time he corresponded, it, you know, it was a day, two days, um in between just on one lesson so it's a, l- a lot easier now when you can actually do like a um, FaceTime live lesson someone you know on the other side of the world watching you uh, live on the driving range and mm. and commenting but uh you know we made it work we made it work so that's hilarious I love that it's like you've got a problem on Thursday you'll figure out the solution on Saturday Sunday sometime it's it's brilliant and and what yeah. was um I, I is it like a big takeaway lesson that you learned from Kelvin as a coach and like uh well, mainly out. more as a per- more as a person I think was um you know um no matter what life throws at your life's worth living and um he's been it'll be 20 years um this year um that he's been in a wheelchair and and I think about what he would have missed out on if if uh things had gone the wrong way and and he didn't make it so um you know you could say that he could have had a he could have had a better life if if things didn't go the way they did. But you know he still had an incredible life. He's you know seen his kids grow up and he's got five grandkids and and he's still co- I mean he's coaching my niece now and and hopefully my nephew. He's just taken up the game too. So you know he 
you know, he's lived a very, very full life and, and has been such an inspiration to me. No, it's, a, it's such an amazing story. And, and you see, you, I've heard so many stories of pros that, that they start off with their childhood coaches and then they start saying, all right, well, I've got potential now. I'm, I'm going to get into, into the top ranks and they'll change the coach or they'll change the team. And then it kind of gets derailed a little bit. I know you mentor a lot of young players. What's your advice with coaching and how to go about your coaches? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all a personal preference. Um, when when I so the way it went with Calvin and I is that um, we we made a major swing change um, uh, at the beginning of two thousand and three, and um, it just became very hard for me to do on my own. And Ian Triggs, who I'd known since I was fourteen, because he was a part of the Queensland um, development coaching. Um, when I was growing up, um, he was uh, out on tour a few times a year because he was coaching Rachel Hetherington at the time. And uh, he came up, he saw me grinding away at the US Open on a Friday afternoon when I was either going to make the cut on the number or just miss. And um, had he said he could tell what I'd been working on and he, he knew I I needed to tidy up a few things to get it where I wanted it. And, and he knew my relationship with Calvin and and I think had that not happened to Calvin, you know, maybe would Calvin still be my coach? Who knows? Um, mm. But I knew that um, how important Calvin was to me and I also knew how important I was to Calvin. And um, so I was never going to make a coaching change unless the offer that Ian Triggs gave me was, um, you know, I know – that Calvin's going to be a part of this. I'd like to help the both of you because I'm. I can travel and I can see you during the year. I'd like to be a part of the team. Mm. So um, you know that's that's how that started. And, and Trigsy worked with us for for about ten years. Or it was about ten years, um, and very successfully. But um, you know, uh, uh, anyone that I have worked with, that's sort of been the condition you know, that I can still sit here and talk to you that Calvin Hall has coached me my entire career, which which he has. That's He's amazing. been involved from start to, to now. No, it's, a, it's a phenomenal story. And and let's go back kind of to that transition of you're a junior now, you're starting to, to shoot some lower scores. Um, tell us a little bit about turning pro and that kind of junior career. Yeah, so I just sort of had... Uh, gradual increase, you know, making my way through the the steps, you know, mm. age, different age champions, and and then uh, you know, getting into state junior squads and and development squads like that, and then eventually making teams, and then through through these trainers and you know, winning different events along the way. And um, by the time I got to uh, nineteen ninety four, mm. um, I finished high school in 92 and, um, you know, I was just working part-time and, and playing as much golf as I could. And uh, those two two years out of high school, um, my progress, you know, without having to worry about school, um, just really increased the, mm. the standard on my play probably quicker than I thought. And um, by the middle of 94, I decided um, that, I was, well, I was um, selected to play in the the world amateur for Australia, and um, that if I'd played well there, I was 
I was going to turn pro, which which I did. And um, so at the end of '94, I I turned pro with 200 bucks in my bank account <laughs> and uh, <laughs> asking uh, hat in hand, asking my grandparents and my parents for a loan. So um, so I didn't even have. I think it was 350 bucks to join the ALPG <laughs> tour and. I didn't even have that in the bank to join it. So, um, yeah, so I definitely started uh, with not much in the bank. That's hilarious. If, you, if that $150 didn't happen, the whole Kari Webb story. <laughs> might, might <laughs> yeah, right. It. And that <laughs> yeah. point, it's, that's phenomenal. I love that. Like that's such a starting from the bottom to the top kind of story there. And like when you're making that move, are you, what's your level of confidence that, all right, I've got something special here. Did you know the expectations high or low? What was that like? Uh, they were pretty reasonable. Um, I'd, I'd played well in some of the professional events in Australia. I finished um, high up. Well, I don't know if I finished second. As an amateur, I'd finished, I played in the last group with Laura Davies as an amateur. Um, and so at the Australian, uh, Australian Masters. And so I knew that I could handle that, that stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you know for sure what's going to happen once it actually means something. And, and you know, that part is to, you know, to pay the hotel bill. Um, it's different when you're an amateur and you play a professional event because you've got nothing to lose. Um, but, yeah, no, I had a certain amount of confidence and, um you know, I, I, my first two events were at the end of 94. It was the Australian Open first at Royal Adelaide and then the Australian Masters at um, at uh, Royal Pines. And I made the cut at the Australian Open, didn't do great, but I was happy that my first event as a pro, I made the cut. And then the next week at the Australian Masters, I played well again and, and um, finished second to Laura Davies um, and made $25,000 and thought I was a millionaire. Um, I thought... I kept going to the ATM to check to see that my bank account still said 25000 in it. <laughs> um, and literally six weeks before that, I had 200 bucks in there. So, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, and it was, um, you know, from there, I think I naively thought that $25,000 would get me through a whole year playing the European mm-hmm. tour, which... I'm glad I was naive enough to think that. Um, so I've never actually um, been a struggling tour professional where I had to worry about that, that mm-hmm. playing well that week to, to keep my card or to pay the hotel bill. Um, you know, I just had steady results early in my European um, tour career. I played over there for a year in 95 and um, August of that year when the, the British Open. So um from there you know i never i never looked back that's amazing and, and because at that time the british open wasn't classified as a major right so so you've essentially right. gone out and won a major in one of your first few tournaments that's yeah <laughs> so yeah I, I couldn't i couldn't believe it either so <laughs> And what's that like? Like what was happening in that tournament? Because I'm guessing it still was a massive tournament in the schedule yeah. at that time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, you know, it was an LPGA co-sanctioned event with the Women's European Tour. And um, I played well for my rookie year. I had quite a few top tens and um, went in there with, with decent form. 
but I don't, you know, I, I guess I was thinking that I could win, but I, I don't actually ever remember like, oh, I can win every, you know, I, I should be able to win. Like I've had a top 10, so I should be able to win. I just, I don't think it ever occurred to me that mm. it was going to happen that quickly. I think, you know, you hear, you've, you know, got to pay your dues before, before that happens. And um, I just played really well all week and um, got to the 72nd hole on the eighth, on the 18th tee that day with the five shot lead and, um, you know, backed off. Uh, my my sight line off the tee was one of the British Open um, sponsor boards and I had to back off, I think, twice um, because I was like, I'm going to win the British Open. <laughs> um, like I just, uh, 20 years old, I, I couldn't believe it. That's amazing. And what's going through your mind? Like, you know, people talk about the mindset of a champion and a winner. Like how were, what do you think separated you even at that young age? To, to allow you to, to finish the job and to, to win the tournaments? I don't, I don't know. Uh, I think um, anyone that becomes successful at whatever they do, they have something uh, in them that they don't even understand. Um, you know, obviously there's a lot of hard, hard work that goes into it, but there's a lot of people that put a lot of hard work into their mm. craft and, and don't uh, reach the pinnacle that I have. Um, I think sometimes it's just the your God-given talent um, and, and that you do all the right things. You do do the hard work and um, and then you do put yourself there with a the chance and and you're completely comfortable in that in that environment and that situation. And, and I, you know, t- to me that was not something I ever had to learn. I, I reveled in, in, in those situations. Yeah, wow, it's, it's amazing. And, and do you think it, like I'm always fascinated by the mental game versus, say, the natural talent, the physical attributes that you've got. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Like would you say, like I remember we spoke to Nicola Hearn in one of our first episodes and Nick was, Nick's story is the opposite. It's like he's a four handicapper grinding, going through that, and he's like, I was all mental. You know, like the, yeah. <laughs> I was talented, but talent, no one would ever say that I was a naturally gifted golfer, but he, he kind of figured it out through mental strength. Where With yours, like when you're sitting there at the driving range in the morning prior to a tournament, did you just kind of feel that, yeah, I've got you covered both physically and mentally or were your expectations um, high going into the tournaments? My expectations were always high, but um, I would say that just like any human being, you have self-doubt and... Um, you know, you, I put a lot of pressure on myself. So, um, you know, I I held myself even on a Monday at the same levels as I did playing on a Sunday. And it took me a long time to realise that um, I was a pretty poor practiser and not to take too much, even though I, I practised a lot, um, I put too high expectations on the quality of my practice and, wanting it to emulate, you know, Sunday back nine um, quality. And um, so because it didn't, it actually led to a lot of doubt going into a tournament um, as to where my game was. Uh, It took me many years to realise that I only needed to show myself just little snippets Mm -hmm. and really focus. Uh, I just couldn't get up for practice. And when I... um, when I walked onto that first tee on Thursday, I was ready to go. Um, and, I, and just something in me changed. Um, and it was definitely 
I definitely am. I was definitely, well, I am still very mentally tough um, to go along with the talent that I worked hard on. Um, but it was all natural. Um, mentally, it, it was just natural. And so mm-hmm. later in my career, when, when things got a little bit more difficult for me, because I never had a, um, a base that my, my mental game was based around, um, I sort of had to learn that all over again. I had to learn mm-hmm. why I was good, you know, what, what I did mentally well. Um, I didn't really have an understanding of that. I, it just came naturally. Yeah, and it's like that paradox of like overthinking it nearly, right? Because then you start, how do I find that special source or whatever it is when it's coming from that natural place? It's I think a lot of golfers feel that even if you're an amateur, it's like how was it so easy the other day and then now it's become that difficult today. Yeah. (laughs) It's good to know that even (laughs) the best in the world and the greatest of all time have that, that same doubt on the golf course and I think, it's yeah. one of the special things of the game that does that to us. <laughs> I think that's why you love golf and hate it all at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, a, that's brilliant. And then, so around that time, 96 to 98, ni- then you start hitting your stride, like what, 99 to 2002, pretty much a very golden run. Same time as another golfer on the men's side is also having a pretty decent run as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Like what it was like, maybe we'll start with, call it that sort of peaking in the Tiger era and watching, you know, the men's game versus the women's game. What was that like? Yeah, well, um, it was was a great time in golf. Uh, Tiger and I were rookies the same year. So for many years we were were, um, compared um, because I had a great rookie year, he did too. Um, And then our, our... Careers paralleled in many ways. Um, when he was winning, you know, tons of majors through um, the late 90s, early 2000s, that's when I was dominating in the majors also. And I think the only difference was that Tiger really never had any peers. Like he didn't have anyone that sort of kept up with him. Whereas, you know, I had Annika Sorenstam, Sari Pack, uh, Julie Engster um, through those years that were we're winning majors as well and winning a lot of tournaments as well. So mm. that was the only difference is that um, I, I didn't separate. Uh, at times I, I separated myself like Tiger did, but I didn't separate myself like Tiger did over that long period of time just because I, I had other players that, um, you know, mm. were, were as good as, as me and doing well, at, you know, at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's pretty – and – with that, like around that similar time, did you get to meet him? Did you ever play with him? Were there any did the paths cross at all? Yeah, I played with him a few times in like TV exhibition matches. Yeah. Um, the uh, probably the most well known one was um, in two thousand and uh, two thousand and one. Yeah, the uh, battle at Bighorn. It was. Yeah. Um, so it was made for primetime uh, evening TV here on the east coast in the states. Um, we played out in, in Palm Springs, uh, which was three hours behind. Um, and um, I was partnered with David Duvall and Annika was um, partnered with Tiger. Yeah. And um, and all four of us, you know, um, Tiger and David were one and two in the world and Annika and I were one and two in the world. Um, and we were playing foursomes. Um, and the plan was that um, we play – and the last four holes are under lights. So we started, I think we started at 
four in the afternoon, I think, out in the desert, maybe five in the afternoon. And um, and then, and so which was eight o'clock prime time in the States, uh, sorry, on the East Coast. And um, yeah, we, we played, but it took us, they set the course up so hard and, and neither none of us had played foursomes together. So it was like we were sort of learning on the fly and um, and on the tees that we weren't teeing off at the beginning, we were required to walk back to to the men's tees uh, where they were teeing off. But it took us so long to play the first nine holes that um, um, you only have 45 minutes to get to the lights before it gets dark. So just run. Like don't. You know, girls, you don't have to walk back to the guys' tees. Let's just keep going. Because so by the time we got to 15, it was dark. On 14, we could hardly see. Um, and then 15, we had lights. So <laughs> it was definitely quite an experience. We had, you know, a huge crowd out there. And, um, you know, it, it, Tiger had a deal with um, Disney um, to do these uh, do these events and he'd done a few in the years before that um and this was the only one that ever featured women in it so um Mm. it was yeah probably an experience I would have enjoyed more now than I did it that did back then um only purely because we we played it on the Monday of our British Open um so we had we finished that night and they flew us privately over to the UK for the British Open um, getting in Tuesday mid morning, so not the not the prep you would normally want for going into a major, but um, yeah, it was definitely a great opportunity for us to to play in that. That's amazing. And did you get to spend some time together throughout your career as well? Like, did you share ever share advice or tips? Given um, a, a little bit, not really, but you know, I've I've always enjoyed the time. I've been around Tiger, I've, mm. I've, um, and and I've admired his career. I mean. The times I've played with him, he certainly did hit the ball um, completely different to anyone of his generation starting out. You know, all the young guys now have aspired to to be like him and, and are um, doing things that, that he was doing 20 years ago. But, um, yeah, for me it was always just I, I was I was just as big a fan watching how he played and, and um you know the things that he that he's done. You know, I wasn't I wasn't old enough to really appreciate what Jack Nicklaus did. So um, to see what Tiger's done in golf and and how long he did it for, um, and then and then the comeback has has been pretty cool to watch. Yeah, and and what's your kind of views like? Because <clears throat> I remember in one of your interviews hearing you speak, and like women's golf wasn't even televised until was it nineteen ninety? Was that when it yeah. first? That was the first uh, women's golf tournament I ever saw on TV yeah. uh, in Australia. Yeah, um, was the Australian Ladies Masters the first year they had it um, at Palm Meadows on the Gold Coast. Um, yeah, I'd never never seen women's golf on TV before that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely definitely come a long way. Um, you know, I even wrote to uh, one of the Australian golf magazines uh, when I was about thirteen, um, asking for more women's content um mm. you know just just even some results of who was winning tournaments in in the u.s on the lpga you know these days if you don't see it on tv or see it in a magazine you can go on the internet and find all the content you want um but you know i was just mad for every bit of information i could get on on golf in general but um you know being a girl i, I wanted to see what other women were doing and uh, 
so by the time I saw it on TV, I, you know, that was already my dream was to play uh, professional golf and, and play on the LPGA. Yeah, that's amazing. And, and compared to, say, call it like the mid-90s and the early 90s to now, um, where, where do you see it heading? Where, where do you think it's at right now? What does it need to change and improve? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, or, you know, I think golf in general was bigger in Australia than it is now. You know, it, it took up more coverage in, in, in uh, newspapers. Um, you know, even now, unless, you know, Adam Scott wins the Masters, I don't think it makes the back page. Mm. Um, you know, and and I feel like uh, women's golf uh, was, you know, we were getting good coverage again, late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and, you know, in recent years, I feel like because for whatever reason, um, all the golf organisations together haven't, you know, gotten gotten these stories out there and kept us in mainstream sporting um culture and and, and newspapers and uh and sports news um i really think now with uh the women's sports movement in australia that we're kind of playing a little bit of catch up um mm. because there's a lot of other um women's sport more prominent on, on tv now in australia um, at least free to air tv you know, you can watch the LPGA, you know, every week on, on Fox, but um, free-to-air TV, it's only a couple couple of weekends a year. Mm. So, yeah, we're really, really playing catch-up now to, you know, women's cricket and um, women's AFL and, and all those sports. Yeah, I think you, you hit a really good point there around the storytelling, especially, because that, that's something that I think we all feel as well and, the the personalities and the individual stories of our golfers probably don't come out as much. Like recently we've seen a little bit more of it, like with Adam Scott going down to Melanie and playing around there and doing all these bits and pieces. But I think you're right there. Like even with, you know, like Canna Green wins a major, like, yeah, they get some coverage, but it probably doesn't get the coverage that it deserves. And um, I think that's a really interesting piece around how to get those stories out there a little bit more and, um, yeah. the personalities of the golfers because it's such a unique individual sport where everyone's different but um, how, how do we unpack and showcase their their individuality I guess yeah and I think for the most part um, we're overseas um, you know we're doing those things overseas um, and I think it's still trying to connect us back to to Australian news during the NRL season and the AFL season and, you know, the cricket summer and it's trying to, to to get us to, you know, at least be elevated in the in where we rank as as newsworthy sports stories. Mm, yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. No, I think um so let's go now to the the first major. So you you're kicking into gear. Tell, tell us a little bit about the first major win what it's like, any memorable moments, what stands out when you look back on it now? Um, well, my first major win came at the De Maurier Classic, which uh, is now the Canadian Open, but um, once De Maurier, um, De Maurier is a cigarette company in Canada, and um, once they weren't, um, they, they faced the same thing as, as we did in Australia with cigarette um, advertising. So once that went away, that's when the British Open became 
a major um, on the LPGA. But so Demori, I was still a major in 99. Um, and I'd only been on the LPGA since 96. And um, I'd say for at least 18 months, I was already uh, answering questions as to why I hadn't won a major yet. So um, I put tons and tons of pressure on myself um, to win, to try and win a major just to stop answering those questions um, uh, mainly. <laughs> um, and 99 actually uh, was one of my, my best years on tour and I got to the Demoria Classic, which was our last major of the year, and I hadn't won a major. And, um, again, putting putting lots of pressure on myself. Um, played the first two rounds and made the cut. I think it was either on the number or just one better than, than the number. But, you know, nowhere, in, nowhere near being involved in winning the event. And then went out <clears throat> on the weekend and shot 12 under. Um, two sixty sixes and uh, and pipped Laura Davies right at the end. There was a group in, in front of her um, on on Sunday and um, had a great back nine to to pip her by one shot uh, on the last. That's so uh, yeah, it was just a really it was a it was a relief more than anything. Um, and I and I truly believe that that was the way I was going to win a major because I was just putting way too much pressure on myself. Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was going to have to be a come from behind where I'd sort of gone, oh, I don't care anymore. Like, and you just go out and fire away and, and that's how I won it. And, you know, that really started a period of some unbelievable golf, especially in the majors over the next three years. Yeah, that's phenomenal. And you hear that story so often that there's like this one moment or the turning point that really kicks off their career in so many athletes, you know, journeys. In that major, was there a moment that stands out where it was like, all right, I'm done here. It's not going to happen this time versus, all right, wait, we've got a sniff. We keep going. Or did it just kind of gradually happen? Yeah, I think it just gradually happened. You know, I, I had a really good round on Saturday and it moved me a long way up. Um, but you know, I think I, I can't even remember. I still, I think I still started the day five shots behind or something like that. So it's still a long, long way off. Um, so it wasn't really till the back nine and I made some early birdies on the back nine that I was like, Oh, you know, I've got a chance here to set, to, to post a score and, and see what LD can do. Um, cause she was the one that sort of was in control of the event. Nice. And then, and then you have that three year run where you're winning everything. <laughs> uh, what's that like? Um, you know, it should have, it should have been more enjoyable than I made it. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I, you know, I read a lot of sporting autobiographies and uh, anyone that's made it to the top of their sport literally says the same thing. Um, you're so focused and driven on being the best that when you tick off when you tick off goals and, and achievements, you're just like, okay, well that yep, I've done that. Now I've got to do this and I've got to do this. And um, you know, so uh, I I guess my example to highlight where I was um through this period, um, it wasn't until about six or seven years ago that I knew that I found out that I held this record on, on the LPGA for most consecutive top tens. Um, and it was because another player had had 11, I think, when they first started talking about that. And they said, 
you know, she's had 11 top 10s in a row. Um, she's chasing Kyrie Webb's record of 16. And I was like, 16? <laughs> I had 16 top 10s in a row? Like, I, And I was like, I was like, what period of time was that? So then I looked and it was 99, 2000. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then and someone said, how could you not know you held that record? And I was like, well, probably because during that time, maybe I won four tournaments. I don't even know how many tournaments I won in those 16 top tens, but I can I can visibly remember me saying on a tournament where on come the back nine on Sunday, I didn't have a chance to win, but I was going to finish in the top ten. And I'm like, oh, just another top ten. <laughs> you know, so just like no perspective on what I was doing. And all I all my sole focus was winning. And if I didn't win, then it didn't I didn't care. You know, I didn't I did care. Like I still played hard to finish, but it just if it wasn't winning, it wasn't it wasn't good enough. And so with that sort of mentality, um, unless you win, you're you're not really enjoying yourself. And um, I wouldn't change that mindset because I think that's what mm. made me good. But I also wish I had a 45 year old head on a 25 year old body to at least go, come on, this is bloody good. You know, like mm. you're never going to do this again. You know, you're never going to come close to 16 top tens in a row. So, um, yeah. Uh, it was an amazing period of time in my career. That's that's phenomenal. And just unpacking that a little bit more, like that's that's consistency at the most elite level. If you look back on it now, what do you think it was? What was clicking at that time? Or were you just in the zone or was there something yeah. happening? Was there a mixture of things? Yeah, I think just in the zone and very, very, very confident. Um, and, um, yeah, just... Just, you know, I think that that's how golf is. You just ride these waves of confidence and, and it, it just seems like when when you're riding the, the wave high, you know, you get you, you get the good bounces. You make the 10-footer for par to keep the momentum going. Um, you know, when, when you're struggling and, and you just need that one putt, you know, you could look back at, a number of patches in in your career, and if you'd made that ten footer at that time, it just would have started to snowball, and and um, and that's generally what happens when you get out of a, a period where you're not playing as well. So you've just got to just go with the ups and the downs. And I just had a very long up, up period um, where I, I just kept riding it as long as I could. I I knew that at some point it was it wasn't going to be that good, but and I did understand that, but. Um, you know, I, I, I rode it as long as I could. Oh, it's, it's all amazing. And, hey, getting to taste it for, for that time is still something that very, very few people get to do. And it's it's amazing just to hear you unpack and kind of reflect on that as a moment. And I think listening to Tiger speak in one of his interviews was the same thing. It's like, I, I don't play unless I'm going to win, right? Like it's yeah. it's that mindset. And I think that's probably what separates the the greats from the other greats, <laughs> if yeah. that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is that mindset. And yeah, that, that's, I love that. You didn't even know that you had that record. And it's not like you just have yeah. the record, it's, it's leading right. it by five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's phenomenal. And so you, you go through that period of time, flying, kicking along, then kind of tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced and 
what you learned from those? Yeah, well, um, I think, you know, I started my career off, you know, like we talked 95, <clears throat> I won the British Open, then 96, so, you know, um, led the money list on the LPGA and won Rookie of the Year. And, you know, then it just was this, you know, progression of up to where, you know, I was number one in the world. Um, you know, and I think, you know, at some point you know that that's not always going to be the case. Um, I think for me, it w- because I never, I just had this continually good progression. I never had the ups and the downs to get to number one. Um, that, you know, it was learning to deal with. Um, and I think, I guess the biggest lesson I learned is how fine a line it is from being the best in the world to being 20th in the world to being 50th in the world. Um, it's a it's a very very fine line, and and you know when I was on the good side of the fine line, um, you know you thought there was miles between that and playing poorly, but it's it's really you know it's really a shot here or there over the course of a tournament. Um, like I said, making the putt at the right time um, changes your whole mindset or or the whole momentum of your tournament. Um, so when I was on the the side of the fine line that wasn't um, wasn't going well, um, you know. Then you just start searching for what you know what needs to be fixed. And and like I mentioned earlier, for me, it was going back and and relearning the mental part of the game that I was so naturally gifted mm-hmm. at, and learning the processes to to be able to handle um, the pressures of playing and and uh, and, you know, negative thoughts that creep in. And, you know, I think I, I always had those negative thoughts when I played well, but I just, they came in and then they went out. Or mm. when they came in, they motivated me to prove myself wrong, you know. So, um, you know, I had to learn. And when the negative thoughts came in, they stayed in my head <laughs> um, how to get rid of them. So it was just all, you know, for me, that was the biggest learning learning curve for me was just retraining myself mentally. Yeah, well, it's it's a bit like the hero's journey, isn't it? You sort of start off, then you have to go through the, the adversity and, and the challenges. You, you spoke about rebuilding that mental side. Like what did you learn through that process specifically that, that you had to change mentally? Uh, just a lot of the, um, the self-talk mm-hmm. um, and how I spoke to myself. You know, I could mm-hmm. tell myself that, that was a crap shot, but not tell myself that I was crap. There's a very big difference in saying that was a really crappy shot versus you're crap um, mm. and how your brain sees that, um, especially if you start listening to that self-talk. So, um, yeah, it was, you know, realising how hard I was being on myself and just to, to ease off on the pedal a little mm. bit and cut myself some slack. Yeah, I think, I think golf's a funny game like that. Like I've played with people who are the calmest people in normal life and never say anything that's negative what but then when they're on the golf course some of the self-talk that goes down <laughs> it's like <Yeah. laughs> wow <laughs> Where, yeah. where's that coming from like how's this game do this to us where yeah right <laughs> uh, and, and we just keep coming back for more <laughs> <laughs> suckers for punishment <laughs> but yeah i think i think it's a unique thing about golf that not many people realize that how much goes on between the ears out there, whether you're an amateur or a professional. Um, that's yeah. the common thread that binds us all. <laughs> I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, and actually, uh, you know, when I watch golf, I I I get more stressed out watching golf on TV um, than I do playing it because I I can feel like feel those emotions like when a guy has lipped out three putts in a row or you know oh. a girl you know just gets that wrong bounce and you know and you just think you know the build up of that over the years like you just oh. like it does it, it it wears on you a little bit like yeah one that stands out is like Jordan Spieth at the Masters just hitting it in the water over and over again yeah. like that yeah. feeling it doesn't matter if you're a golfer you just feel that pain of yeah <laughs> Uh, did you have any moments like that that stand out in your career where you're like, oh, just want to hide right now? Or <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm sure there's plenty, but I guess um, for me, I don't, I don't remember this, them specifically, which is good. It means that That's I've, good. I've, I've, I've <laughs> blocked out. <laughs> but in saying that, in saying that, I still sweat over a three footer now, and that's because of all the three footers I've missed. <laughs> yeah. So, and so it's not that you remember a specific one; you just remember you've missed a few, and and so then you start getting worked up about it. But yeah, no, I I, I guess I've done pretty well with that because I don't I don't really have a. I mean, I'm there's been shots that I've hit at the time. I'm like, well, that was embarrassing, but I can't really recall them yeah. now um, as specific shots. So that's oh. a good thing. Lucky you. I wish I wish I had that ability to just forget them like that. Uh, that that's amazing. And then on the flip side, are, are there any moments that just really stick out in the career of, wow, that was an amazing shot or an amazing part or, you know, a few of the highlights? Yeah. Um, well, the best shot. Um, it's probably not the best shot I've ever hit, but the um, biggest shot I've ever hit. Um was uh, at the 2006 Craft Nabisco, um, which is our first major of the year. And um, it was originally called the Dynast, had a few different names, but back in 2006, it was the Craft Nabisco. Um, but I was um, about three groups ahead of the last group on Sunday and was having a great Sunday. Got to 18, uh, tied for the lead, and uh, knew I needed uh, a birdie on the last. And um they'd moved the tees up that day to where for the first time and well I'd been on tour 10 years for the first time in 10 years um they'd made the the last reachable um it's an island green um completely surrounded by water and um I missed the fairway so um I had to lay up so from 116 yards in I knew I had to to get it as close as I possibly could because at this stage this is when the three footers were were giving me fits so I wanted as easy a part as possible and uh and just hit the purest uh pitching wedge um bounced a couple of times and and went in the hole and uh at the time I actually thought I'd hold that to win just because the, the leaders hadn't they'd gone backwards during the day and, um I just I thought I'd hold that to win but um as it turned out Lorena Ochoa eagled Eagled the last in the last group to to tie me and and we're in a playoff and um, the shot I hit I hit a couple of shots in that playoff that were probably better than that wedge but that wedge I can I can recall the um, the emotions like I think if they had you know the the muscle three um, D monitors on me right now like they'd be able to um, uh, replay how I was feeling at the time. Oh, that's amazing. That's that's. 
arguably one of the more iconic moments in Australian golf. So it, it's fair enough that that's the one that stands out. Uh, yeah. It, it, like, yeah. And then that in that tournament, that went to a playoff, right? So you, you yeah. thought that yep. you'd won at that point, <laughs> holding out as yeah. you should. Yeah. How do you deal with that? Yeah, yeah well, um, I had quite a few friends at that event too. So by the time I got out of the school tent, <laughs> I knew that um, I was only one shot ahead. So I was like, well, there's a very good chance that I will be in a playoff uh, now. And um, so I had to try and get myself down. And when I walked out of the school tent, um, all my friends were there and, of course, giddy with excitement and I just was like, I have to get out of here. I can't, if, you know, I can't, I want to live in this moment. You just want to keep celebrating that moment. But I knew that if I did that, I wouldn't have come back to earth in time if there was a playoff. So um, my caddy Mikey and I just headed to the driving range and we were just the only two over there. And just, I mean, I still couldn't hit a ball for about 10 minutes over there. I was still shaking, but just to get away from it and get my, my pulse rate back down. Oh, it's such an amazing story. So you go regroup, hits the balls, and then what are you feeling like when you when you head back out to to finish off the tournament? Um, well, you know, Lorena eagled the last two, so I feel like she was probably as pumped up as I still was. But I just felt like, I guess you don't you don't hit a shot like that and then and then lose. So. Um, but Lorena, see, Lorena, um, how she eagled it was she hit the green in two to about 10 feet and hold it. So I knew she could reach the green so um, and easily reach the green. She went, she hit a hybrid in. Uh, and so in the playoff, I hit the fairway and um, she was 20 or 30 yards in front of me. So she was going again with probably a hybrid. And um, I had to make the decision. I couldn't get to the... Um, the green uh, shapes left to right and the right cover is uh, a little bit further than the left cover and I couldn't, I mean, I would have because I the three would I hit would have covered the right cover but it was only because of the adrenaline. I couldn't, on just a normal Thursday, I wouldn't have, I would have probably laid up um, because I wouldn't have guaranteed I could make the right cover but um, I knew I could that to be comfortable I had to go for the left cover and just hope that it fed round to the to the back. Um, and I was also worried about it going over the green. I'd never gone for this green in my whole career. Um, and I actually didn't think that I was probably going to do it when I played the practice round from there um, because I knew I'd be coming in with a three-wood and I'm like, why would I go for this an island green with a three-wood? <laughs> so um, in the playoff I was like, I have to, I have to hit three-wood because Lorraine is going to go for it. Um, and I said to Mikey, um, what's behind the green? Is there any rough before the water or is it closely mine? And he goes, no, there's rough. He said, I threw balls down there when I walked the course and the ball holds up if it goes over. So I was like, all right. And that's where I hit it. It raced over that green. I was like, I hope you're right. And I was I was good. I, you know, I was a couple of yards into the thick rough. but um, And that chip shot was by far a better shot that I – that I hit in that playoff and the wedge shot I hit and made was a way more difficult shot that I hit to about 10 feet and eventually hold to, to win the playoff. Wow. I've got like sweaty palms talking through it. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing story. And, and from the majors, you won seven, 
obviously. Is there, is there any, is there a single one that stands out more than the others? Well, that one probably does. It's my last major um, and the way in which I won it and I enjoyed that one the most. So mm. that one sticks out the best. What's the celebration like after winning a major? What happens? Well, that one, that one was like a, a clip from The Hangover. <laughs> it was, like I said, I had plenty of friends in town and then Mikey was staying in a house with about eight caddies. So we all met at their house and it was just the next morning. We weren't, we didn't stay, but they said it looked like there was just like clothes in the pool and empty bottles of this. It was just an episode of or a clip from The Hangover. And, awesome. and, my, and my hangover was definitely from The Hangover. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. So it was celebrated properly. Absolutely. Yes, it was. It, yeah. it certainly was. Very good, very good. The, it's been amazing just sort of going through the career and, you know, the ups, the downs and, and all of that. Now, like, just sort of shifting gears a little bit. I know where you're at now at this point in your career, you're still obviously playing. Um, I know you play a limited schedule of tournaments, but the big thing I know that you've been doing is mentoring a lot of the, the younger golfers. And there's this great YouTube clip that we'll link uh, to the episode called Be Like Kari where pretty much every single young Australian golf superstar is saying what they love about you. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's quite an amazing video. Tell us a little bit about that and your relationship with the, the next generation coming through. Yeah, well, um, I partnered back in 2007, I partnered with um, uh, Golf Australia um, and we came up with the, the Kari Web Series. And um, it's, a, it's a scholarship program where the – uh, leading to uh, women, uh, Australian women, um, through a series of events that they play, um, win a monetary scholarship that helps them um, with any of their golf travel expenses or coaching or anything like that. Um, but the for me, the the thing I get out of it the most, and I think is the coolest part, is um, the girls come over um, to a tournament in the states, which. Um, has been the U.S. Open um, since, well from 2008 until the last couple of years, and then the date of the U.S. Open changed. Um, so it's been at the KPMG Women's PGA Championship the last two years. Um, so for me, that's the coolest experience. Um, the first year, um, so it started in 07, 08. Um, that was their summer uh, summer season, and um, so it was at the 08. Um, US Open that the girls came for the first time and um, when I decided that it was going to be the US Open you know people in my team were like are you sure you want it to be the US Open like that you know and I said no I'm not sure I don't know how it's going to go for me but um, this is the biggest event that we play and I want the girls to aspire to play in this mm. event I don't want to just go to some random um, regular event that doesn't have the atmosphere of a US Open. I want them to aspire to play at the the top of our sport. And um, it was the best decision I ever made because it, it's been the best experience. Um, and then to top it off, uh, last year's Women's PGA, um, uh, so the girls, so I rent a house and um, the girls stay in the house with me and, oh, awesome. and they, you know, they see, you know, what I do when I get up, breakfast, you know, come with me to the golf course and, and see what goes into a week 
uh, at a professional major. Um, and last year, and some years we have extra bedrooms. So last year we had a couple extra bedrooms. So Hannah Green and Sue O um, stayed with us. So they're two past Curry Web Series uh, winners, and and um, and mm-hmm. I had the two girls, uh, Becky Kay and Grace Kim over, and then Stacy Peters, Stacy Keating, she was um, was one of the first scholarship winners that was over in in two thousand and eight. Um, she now works in high performance for Golf Australia, so she was there as well, staying. So we're all in the house together, and and uh, Hannah goes on and and wins. So um, that was that was the ultimate. I, I think we're gonna have a hard time uh, living up to, to that one. But um, yeah. So so going back to to my my last major win, I, I that was my most recent mentoring was was teaching the girls how to celebrate properly. <laughs> And that's that's a ridiculous. So, so you're you're taking full credit for that win, then. Obviously, it's setting up that environment. <laughs> it's putting the house. It's yeah, like kind of had to execute on the day, but it's it's the mentoring yeah. for sure. Oh <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I'm definitely not taking credit for that. But um, I just uh, it's been such a joy for me, and mm. and throughout, throughout the biggest thing for me with them coming to those events and staying with me is that at the end of the week we you know we're friends and um they feel comfortable in reaching out and asking for help uh and it wasn't you know and when they come on tour it's not like they don't know me and feel intimidated to be around me because apparently i'm an intimidating person so um (laughs) um but uh yeah so we're already friends and and uh and i just get the biggest kick out of following them and and I guess now I know what my parents went through all these years watching live scoring and refresh, refresh, refresh <laughs> when I can't see them on TV. Uh, that's that's amazing. And, and I'm just picturing that experience as a learning experience. It must fast track uh, the ones earlier on in their career so much more to to be around that, like not only learning from your experiences, but then seeing that go down <laughs> while they're there in the house and being able to ask questions and bounce ideas. Uh, yeah yeah I think it, it's great because they're you know the questions they're asking are are about what they saw that day um mm. you know so they're getting instant feedback and 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 then relating it to to their games as well so yeah it's been it's been really good no oh, that's that's awesome uh we'll share we'll share a link and some more info about that as well at the end of this okay um that's brilliant and then I know that you're doing some really exciting stuff with golf Australia as well so you've got uh, you're part of the Vision 2025. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I think uh, I guess my role in it is that um, you know I felt with the with the Curry Web series that I felt like the depth of uh, the elite girls coming through. You know, there wasn't um, a slew of them. You know, we had a good couple every year, but there wasn't the depth. You know, just even watching scores. It just didn't seem to to be the depth, and that that goes down to grassroots. And so, you know, I talked to Golf Australia about that, and um, you know, to give them credit, uh, I think they really um, took the challenge head on, and and um, and understood too that you know it's a sector in golf that is really um, has been underserved um, and under. Um, 
welcomed, I guess, you know, um, and it's about changing the culture and clubs uh, to welcome, you know, not just young girls but young boys too, making making their their first experience at a golf club better and making like like my experience at where I grew up, you know, making me making want to come back to the golf course, not, oh, my God, if I go out there, they're going to tell me to tuck my shirt in and take my hat off in the clubhouse and, you know, just all those all those rules and, and all that culture that we do love about golf, but is it really why we love golf and do we really need to hold on to those things, um, you know? And, and I think as far as, um, you know, uh, mature age women starting golf, um, you know, I think female members of Kimst is bad, you know, they there sometimes can be unwelcoming to new female members to clubs rather than, you know, rolling out the red carpet to to someone, you know, under the age of 40 or 50 that wants to take up the game. You know, mm. that's where we need we need women to play golf. And and the thing that I don't get is, you know, um, husbands, if you get your wife to play, she won't be mad at you when you go and play golf on a Saturday because she'll be out there with you. So... <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I think we need to encourage women to, to take up the game and then and then that gets that gets kids in the game as well. And then, and then it does become the family sport. Yeah, I think it's uh, – I'm just nodding and smiling because I couldn't agree with you more. And it's it's one of the big things behind what we're trying to do at Future Golf as well is how do you how do you expose the game of golf to, to the non-traditional golfer? And we sort of started off more with, you know, predominantly younger men, but it was how do you win back that group that maybe played when they were teenagers and then started playing footy or cricket, got lost to the sport. Uh, how do you get them back into the into our great game um, at some point? And now we're looking even more beyond that over the last couple of years is how do we get younger women into the game? Like uh, we did uh, a Future Women initiative last year where we sponsored 250 memberships. Even from that, though, it was like that represented nearly a 5% increase in golfers in that age group nationally. And that blew our mind in terms of what there's only 5,000 golfers aged between 20 and 39 nationally that are playing golf. It, it, it's crazy. And yeah. I think it, it's hard. It's going to be hard for us as a sport to remain sustainable and to grow if, if we can't attract people, yeah, at the grassroots when they're, you know, juniors, yeah. teenagers, um, you know, younger, starting families. Like I think that's... It's a real key thing that we need to unlock as a sport. And do you think a lot of it's yeah, based around so the too. barriers? I agree with you. Um, a little bit, I think, too, you know, people are time poor, so they feel like they don't have the time to play golf. So I think it's up to to golf and golf courses to come up with, um, you know, other options, you know, um, you know, I think um, the world bodies, I know the RNA and the USGA are trying to come up with, um, you know, you can play nine holes and still put that card in for your handicap. Um, you don't have to play 18 holes only to have a handicap. Um, you know, and I think that's the way of the future is, you know, um, even to have, um, you know, nine hole competition, uh, you know, when, even if it's a Wednesday or a Saturday um, women's competition, that's just nine holes. Uh, you know, maybe that's especially for uh Women that have um, kids at home, nine holes might be the only amount of time that they can get someone to look after their kids while they go and play play golf. Or, mm-hmm. or clubs come up come up with 
you know, having a crèche at the course that isn't, you know, overly expensive to keep the kids in and and maybe that's when the kids get introduced to the game as well. I think, you know, um, everyone involved in golf has to, to come up with creative ways to to get younger people, not just women, but younger people in general into the game and and um, and with that make them make them feel comfortable, make them feel like it is something for their age and not, you know, an old person sport, which, you know, um, it really isn't. <laughs> You know, it's it, you you play it better when you're younger, um, and it's easier to play when you're younger as well. Um, but uh, you know, it's it's changing all those mindsets. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's the one thing that we've found along our journey over the last six years is that, yeah, it's not an old person sport because the addiction to golf can happen at any age, whether you're eight, fifteen, twenty. It's more after you hit that first shot. Most people are pretty hooked. Uh, it's getting yeah. through just that initial hurdle, right, and not getting lost right. to the game either because you felt uncomfortable or intimidated or, oh, I'm not good at this. Um, it's not for me. And right. I think that's that feels like it's the real key bit that we need to unlock is how do we get people past that initial um, learning curve? Then it's nearly yeah. 100% success rate of loving the sport. Like, Yeah. Uh, um, and yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Like, what are your thoughts on things like future golf and you know top golf and X golf and all the all the new bits and pieces that are kind of entering the space? Well, I think that's the survival of of golf. I think um, that's bringing new people to the game. Um, I know with top golf that um, that they're even getting to the point now where they want to have um, you know a nine hole golf course attached to their top golf facility. Um, because they've got so many people that have enjoyed top top golf, their top golf experience. Now they want to go and play um, on a real golf course, and and I guess they would feel comfortable if it was associated with top golf because it, you know, you can go to top golf wearing jeans and a t-shirt. So, um, you know, th- those sort of things. I think the initiative you did with um, with getting um, twenty to thirty nine year old women involved. Um, in, in future golf and, and the concept of future golf, I think is, is great. Um, you know, I, we talked about it last year when we first met, um, you know, it, it gets people who don't think that they're ever going to get use out of a membership. It's kind of like when you join a gym, I don't, I don't want to pay full membership because I don't think I'm going to go for 12 months, even though it's cheaper to pay for 12 months, I'm just going to pay for three. So I think it's, it's, it's good to get people's feet wet to see, oh yeah, okay, I'm I'm playing fifteen games a year and next the next year I'm paying playing thirty. So um I think it's um it's a great way for people to feel connected too to other people like them. Mm. I think um well thank you. And uh that that's yeah, we we agree and I think it's it's about bridging that gap because what we find as well with our members is that once they get into the game and they're reconnected to it, they, they will join a club because it becomes a no-brainer to go and start practising, getting your handicap lower, playing at the same course. And and the value of a, a traditional membership becomes ridiculous at that point. when you If you're playing more than 20 rounds of golf a year, uh, it's a lot cheaper joining a club than it is to, to play green fair golf uh, at a variety of different courses. So I think... Um, and, and that was the same for me getting into the sport. It, it's really hard to go from starting and not having family members or being connected to the sport, going to a driving range, 
then what? Like, where do you then go to get to the next level? And I think that right. that's hopefully, uh, as you hit it on the head there, that's hopefully what things like Top Golf and Future Golf and X Golf and all these things can do is provide that safer environment to um, right. to, to build up in. But that's awesome. Yeah. And, and with Vision Twenty Twenty Five, is is there particular aspects of that that you're really excited about? Um, well, I think, like I said, um, you know, changing the culture a little bit and the way clubs look at um, a model um, mm-hmm. of attracting um, members and, and particularly girls and, and women to the game. Um, and I, I actually think that's the biggest key, um, that. And and also, you know, um, they're working with the PGA of Australia too and, and teaching um, the you know the the golf professionals um that you can't teach a woman the way you teach a man and 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 also to change their expectations of you know there's just all this different culture around it where a woman can feel from the teaching pro that he doesn't think she's any good she already can feel that um Mm. and i think it's it's um changing the way that they're taught and and the words that they're using to encourage um, women to to stay in it. Um, if they feel like, you know, they're being, you know, not told to their face that they're not good, but if they feel like no one thinks that they're going to be good or, you know, this, they're just wasting their time, then, you know, that's already one step of them feeling uncomfortable. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's it's just changing just that whole that whole scene and 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 for little girls too like I wasn't a I wasn't a little girl that was afraid to to play with the boys um but um you know I've heard from a lot of my friends that that teach kids that um you know girls are very if they're separated if they're you know at a junior clinic and they separate the girls they're boisterous and they're playing and and then then they bring them in with the boys they let the boys speak and Mm. and take a step back it's just I guess it's just a natural natural instinct and um you know I wasn't a girl that would have done that I would have been right in there with the boys and you know saying that I could hit the shot better than them but um if there are are girls that feel that way it's teaching them differently and and making Mm -hmm. them still feel welcome and still have a good time when they're out out at the golf course yeah I love that I think you're, you're right you know um Having having more diversity in the offerings is is really key, you know, for for all the different I think groups that probably aren't the traditional golfer, which is at the moment still the older golfer that's been around the sport for maybe 20, 30 years. I, I think that's it's such a critical point around making it more comfortable and more targeted and tailored for for the individual. Like if I speak to my wife as well, she's like, "Well, I'm never going to go play 18 holes with you." But if there's bunkers and bubbles and we're playing three holes and <laughs> there's some champagne and some music and right. it's more of a social experience, then I'm in, you know, but it's not yeah. going to be 18 holes with a polo shirt and walking around for five hours. She's just not at that point yet. It's got no interest. Right. But the idea right. of being on a beautiful parcel of land and having a nice social experience, that's completely in the hitting zone. So right, uh, right. I think, I think that's where it can get really exciting with some new innovations over the next few years. And it's great to see yeah, that even sure. at the top level of the sport, that that's the discussion nowadays. It's not about protecting the traditions, you know, like, which is still really important, but it's also about evolving. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it even goes higher than Golf Australia. You know, the RNA um, is is realizing too that it's really an untouched or you know un un you know they haven't unearthed that market yet. They really it hasn't they haven't paid enough attention to it and. And that really, that's where the growth of the sport's going to be. Yeah, agreed, agreed. And now shifting gears a little bit, um, the way that where we got connected, it's through, I think, one of my favourite people in golf, and you're wearing the polo shirt there, it's through Ross Perrett yep. and through his son John, who's been a great mate of mine um, since we started entering the golf space. Tell us a little bit about uh, the design and your relationship with Ross and what you're doing in that space. Uh, well, I agree with you. Ross is uh, one of, has or has since the day I met him been one of my favourite people. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I worked with um, Ross and and Peter Thompson. Um, uh, Ross and Peter invited me to be a part of their Rio Olympic bid um, for the Olympic golf course for the 2016 Olympics in Rio. And uh, you know, I'd I'd had um, a little bit to do with Peter over the years, and and I'd love loved Peter and briefly I'd met Ross but um when they brought me into their office and and as a part of their team um you know right from day one uh I felt like I'd been a part of the team for a long time and there was a lot of mutual respect in the room and um I'd been involved with a little bit of course design um throughout my career um and I'd never felt um more uh part of the team and mutual respect as I did working with Peter and Ross. Um, and uh, so as the years went on, we stayed in touch. We, we bid on a few different jobs and, and then obviously Peter um, retired and, um, and then, and then passed a couple of years ago. But uh, um, Ross and I um, uh, went in, uh, we verbally agreed to, to put in a bid on Indrapilly golf club when we, I'd heard that that was uh, a possibility and, um, we we beat uh, a long list of uh, other um, uh, golf course architecture companies uh, to to win the job at Indrapilly. Uh, so Ross and I, um, after many attempts at trying to get a job together, we uh, we formed uh, Parrot Web, and uh, yeah, we're we're actively working on Indrapilly Golf Club, the thirty six hole redesign in Brisbane, and uh, yeah, out there we've got um, a couple of. Um, logs in the fire uh, courses uh, uh, in Australia and, and in Asia, but uh, yeah, definitely looking for more work. That's awesome, amazing. And, and what is it that you love about the the design space? Um, well, I think for me, it's um, you know, obviously, it's been uh, uh, playing golf courses and playing so many around the world. It's subconsciously been a part of my life for a very long time, and. And like I said, I have had a chance to, to do a little bit even st- starting way back in the late 90s. But um, um, for me, it it, it was uh, – and I probably have learnt the, mo- the most um, being around Ross and Peter. Um, but for me, it, you know, I, I, I looked at golf courses so one-dimensionally um, for a long time and just how to play it and rather than what actually went into it. And I think um, for many years I – I liked golf courses and I didn't like others, but I don't think I could have explained to you why I did. Um, and, uh, you know, the golf design aspect and architecture aspect has sort of been evolving for me. And, um, and you know, 
I, I, it's been a crash course of learning too with Ross and, and uh, obviously I, I know how to, 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 you know, design a whole strategically but there's more than that that goes into it and I just love learning all about it and, and being a part of a team to, to come up with, uh, with concepts. Oh, that's amazing and um yeah i love watching that partnership and as we mentioned earlier ross is like even for myself just been such an awesome mentor and person to have around the industry and i think he just yeah so passionate about the space and uh, i still remember him saying something when we first played a round of golf he's like you can really tell the character of someone when you play a round of golf with them and it's something that sticks out and i think it's really reflective in um you know who he partners up with and how he goes about the business so it, it's awesome to see yeah. that partnership and wishing you guys all the best for that moving yeah, forward as well. yeah. looking forward to it it's exciting and a few sort of quick fire questions to to, to wrap up your dream four ball dream four ball um i would say uh my coach calvin heller uh my grandfather and Mickey Wright. So oh, Mickey awesome. Wright, yeah, Mickey Wright's the only, well, she passed away earlier this year, but um, she was the only living Hall of Fa- LPGA Hall of Famer that I had, I had not got the chance to meet. So um, that that would make up my foursome. That's amazing. And, and we didn't touch on that that much. Like you were, at the time, the youngest inductee into the, the Golf Hall of Fame. Um, I think you were 30 at the time what's that like when you're still in the middle yeah. of the career well I, th- I like it better now so you have to, so that, that you have to be uh i think it's 40 well there's 45 um because tiger's going to be inducted next year um 45 uh i think is better than when you qualify um purely because at 45 you've got so much better perspective than you do when you're in the thick of things um mm. i enjoyed both the World Golf Hall of Fame induction and the LPGA LPGA Hall of Fame induction immensely. Um, I really, really enjoyed both occasions, and and I think I I thought I fully appreciated it. But you know, when you're still in the thick of your career, you're you know you're still thinking about next year and how I'm going to get better. And um, I think you have a better perspective when when you're you know older or, or out of the game um so you can be retired for five years i guess too so you can go in younger than 45 but if you're still competing it's 45 yeah that's amazing and is there is there a player that sticks out from your career that was like the rival or you know kind of the best that you ever saw play um well i think rival wise you know i can't go past annika sorenstam i think um we definitely bought the best out in each other. Um, you know, we, uh, you know, whether we were playing in the same group or, um, you know, comparing ourselves to one another over the course of the year, I think, um, you know, I wanted to be better than her and she wanted to be better than me. And, um, you know, we, we played some epic uh, games of golf together. Um, some of the best rounds of golf I played, she was in, was in the group. So she definitely inspired me to, um to to be as good as I became. That's amazing. And just in in finishing up, uh what's what's the best piece of advice you could give to to someone entering the game of golf or a younger golfer? Um I think just um to have fun. Um you're gonna be 
in one of the most beautiful settings, uh, you know, out with nature uh, on a, you know, manicured golf course and, and, and just, um, you know, just take it one step at a time, um, you know, and make sure you're having fun. Um, if you have fun, uh, you'll, you'll love golf. Uh, if you go in there with the wrong expectations and, and trepidation, um, I think it'll be hard to, to stay in the game. But, you know, um, enjoy it for the, the healthy mental, physical activity it is um, and go out and enjoy a really nice day out. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Kari, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and yeah, with your stories and your knowledge, just really appreciate it. And we can't wait to share this episode with our community and to, to pass on your awesomeness and what an amazing career. I know you're still playing and I have no, wouldn't be surprised if you go out and win another major, even post this interview. So. Oh yeah, I won't. I won't turn that down. (laughs) Absolutely. Especially when I've been in quarantine for, I don't know how long it is now, but there hasn't (laughs) been many, many golf clubs swung recently. So. (laughs) Hey, you'll be fresh. You'll be fresh and ready to to go on the other side of this, but just wanted to say another massive, massive thank you. Um, And yeah, we we can't wait to, to share this episode with our audience. Wishing you all the best and hope you're staying safe in Florida. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And, um, uh, just hide all the, the future golf members and, and um, do whatever you can to invite more people into the game. Uh, thank you so much. Cheers, Carrie.